let's read this amazing passage of scripture. Genesis chapter two, verse four, and we'll read verses four to 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray before we look at this passage of Scripture together. Father God, thank you so much that you have made yourself known to us. You're a God who speaks, that the voice that spoke the universe into the existence is the voice that we can hear today from your word. And so, Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would hear your voice, that it would challenge us, that it would comfort us, that it would shape us to be more like Jesus. And Father, we pray as your word is open, we would see Christ. Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, the perfect world or utopia is a concept that is embedded in the human mind. There is something in us that strives for it. That's why there are countless ideas and philosophies and political and religious theories which are geared towards trying to create a perfect society. How can we create the perfect culture where where everyone gets along with each other, where there is no violence or war or hatred, where everyone will be perfectly happy and content? There is a longing that we have for this. And we see this this longing not just in in theories, in, in political theories or religious theories or philosophical theories, but we see it in the, the songs that we sing, in the stories that we tell. Think about fairy stories. How does a fairy tale usually begin? Once upon a time, and what's the classic ending to a fairy tale? And they lived happily ever after. We want stories that that end well. I don't know if you've ever gone to the cinema and you've seen a film that doesn't have a happy ending. You feel kind of robbed, kind of cheated. And built in us is is this desire for resolve, this desire for perfection, this desire for utopia. And I would argue that happily ever after is not a childish pipe dream, but a fundamental longing in the soul of man that goes right back to the creation of the world. 
We want a perfect world, but the problem is we never get it, which is why we have to place it either in the context of an imaginative story or in some political or philosophical theory. This is why I think what we're going to look at this morning is huge. Genesis 2 is a massive passage because Genesis 2 describes utopia, paradise, the perfect world, the world that humanity was originally made to inhabit. And I want to look at what that is this morning as we study this passage, how we lost it, and how God plans to restore it back to humanity. There's an outline on the back of your service sheet, which I think will be quite helpful uh, as we deal with this huge Uh, but immensely important topic. Here's my point. Here's what I think the point is of that section of scripture that I just read. Paradise is humanity being in perfect relationship with God. That's the perfect world. That's what Genesis 2, I think, is saying. Paradise is humanity being in a perfect relationship with God, with our creator. Let me show you how I think we see that in the text. Firstly, we see it in how humanity is intimately connected to God. Look at verse 7. And verse 7 reads, The Lord God, notice that the term there, Lord God, Lord is in capitals. Uh, That means that it's not just a title. When you see Lord in capitals, it's the divine name of God in the Old Testament. It's intimate. It's a personal name. So the first time this has appeared in Genesis, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, we saw, as we've been looking at Genesis, we've been looking at the kind of poetic prologue of chapter one. We've seen that when God creates, he does so simply by speaking. He speaks a word and the universe comes into being. I love the kind of throwaway remark in uh, in Genesis one about the creation of the stars. It's just, and he made the stars. Throwaway remark. These wonderful cosmic realities. God speaks and they are made. But with humanity, there is something different. And in Genesis 2, we're kind of zooming out of the the wide-scale picture we get in Genesis 1, and we're getting up close and personal. God literally gets down in the dirt and gets his hands dirty when he forms humanity. Do you see that? The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. We are made intimately by our creator. One of the great things about the advance of science is, is that we become more and more aware. We get to study the fingerprints of God in the way that we are made up. So I was doing a talk at Youth Club. I I got some interesting facts for them. uh, And I was looking at the human genome. Do you know that if you were to get a single strand of your DNA and stretch it out, it would be about six foot tall, a single strand. There's loads of them in a cell, and there's 100 trillion cells in your body. If you were to get every strand of DNA in your body and stretch it out end to end, it would go from here to the moon 6,000 times. That is what you are made up of, all this wonderful information. And when we look at the masterpiece that is the human eye, or we study the intricacies of the human genome, we can say what David said in Psalm 139, we are fearfully wonderfully made. God forms Adam with his own hands, but the specialness and uniqueness of Adam is not only seen in how intricately he was made, but how intimately. You see what God does in in Genesis 2? He stoops down. 
He uses the dust, he molds Adam, and then he breathes life into Adam. The Hebrew here um, is apparently uh, akin to describing something like a kiss, which to me sounds a bit weird, but it was more common in the ancient culture. Um, But it's kind of describing a, a, a warm a personal, a face-to-face intimacy that God has with, with Adam that he doesn't have with the rest of the created order. God breathes and gives Adam life. There is a connection that comes from God to Adam, a connection between the creator and humanity. And therefore, we can see just from that verse alone that humanity is both natural, so he must not think too much of himself, and supernatural, so he must not think too little of himself. We are nothing but dust. We are like a vapor in the mist of time, but we bear the image of our heavenly Father. and We are made to be connected to him. And that's important to recognize, that, that kind of opening statement about the creation of humanity, that intimate connection It's integral to understanding Eden. It's integral to understanding the paradise of God. Adam is intimately connected to God and because God loves and delights in the one he made for himself, he wants to give him the best and the greatest that he has to offer in creation. That's what we see secondly, verses 8 to 15, that being in perfect relationship with God means enjoying and working his good creation. God's provision for Adam is a model of parental care. He places Adam in a garden called Eden, and the word for garden here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the word paradisos, which is where we get the word paradise. He places Adam in the paradise of Eden. And notice verse 9. God gives to Adam every tree, not that it's just good for food, tasty, but every tree that is pleasing to the sight. Every tree that is pleasing to the sight, there is an aesthetic as well as a practical provision for Adam. God wants Adam to enjoy beauty as well as the abundance of good food. Now think about that. God could have just given humanity one type of food. He could have just given us apples, and that's all we need. To, to survive. That's all we need for sustenance. That's not what God is like, though. He's a wonderful, vibrant creator who creates this multifaceted, beautiful creation. He makes variety and beauty. God creates art as well as sustenance. And because Eden, I am arguing, is all about relationship, a father will always want to give what is best for his children. And when God gives what is best, it is perfectly delightful in every way. He wants to delight all the senses, not just the taste buds. And then the author then tells us that in Eden, in this paradise, we have these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there too. Now, I'm not exactly sure uh, what to make of these two trees, what they are. I looked at the commentators and there's about five different interpretations as to what they are. So if you really want to know what the tree of life is and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, come back here in two weeks and Robin Sidsurf will tell you exactly what they are when he preaches on it from Genesis 3. 
There you go. Um, but I think for now, what we could say about them is that they, they show the, the moral perfection of Eden and the eternal life that man was to joy, enjoy within Eden. And the abundance of the good of this paradise of God's creation is further highlighted there in verses 10 to 14 uh, by the description of this mighty river that flows out of it. The, the, we, don't, we don't know what these two rivers are that um, Moses mentions at the start there. But the Tigris and the Euphrates, we do know. The Tigris and the Euphrates are two of the largest rivers in the Middle East. And what uh, Moses is telling us is that the river that was in Eden must have been huge because that was the river that fed the Tigris and the Euphrates. And so we are seeing that Eden is this wonderfully fertile place abounding in God's good provision. It's I find it quite interesting, these verses, just the kind of digression into the description of the rivers and the names of them. It seems kind of a wee bit out of place. Here's why I think, possibly, why that is mentioned. Eden was never to be viewed as some sort of metaphor. Eden was a real physical place that inhabited the world that we inhabit now. It was real. This paradise existed and God places Adam in this paradise to enjoy it. But not just to enjoy it, notice verse 15, but to work it. There's a lot about work in these opening chapters of Genesis. I don't know if you've noticed that as we've studied it. Human beings were created to work because we are made in the image of God. We are connected to God. We were connected to God in relationship to him and made to continue his work like children imitating their father. The work Adam had here, we tend to think of work as a negative thing. It wasn't. There was work before sin and death and chaos and evil entered into the world. And the work that Adam had here would not have been burdensome or tiring. It was a joyful, creative, pleasant continuation and upkeeping of what God had given him to enjoy and declared to be good. Final point paradise is humanity being in perfect relationship with God is seen in that humanity sits under God's authority. See that? Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. See what God is doing. God is... God's laying a choice here for Adam. These two trees, whatever they are, Robin will tell us, these two trees, um, although I believe real physical trees, um, are nevertheless symbolic kind of, of a choice that Adam has between life and between death. But notice before we get to what God forbids, what he allows, we tend to read this as Oh, this seems quite harsh. Why is God putting a stipulation here? But notice what he allows. God says to Adam, you can have any tree in the garden. In other words, you can enjoy the abundance of my good creation. I want you to enjoy it. God is not some sort of cosmic killjoy who imposes harsh rules and regulations for no reason. That is exactly the lie 
that the serpent that Satan will feed to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. This command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is so key. And here's what I want to argue. I want to argue that that's all tied up with the idea of being in relationship. You see, Adam has to recognize that, that God is not his equal. He is created. He is dust. God is above him, and therefore he is answerable to him. He is under God's authority, as a child would be under the authority of his or her parent. And in presenting Adam with a choice here, God is giving Adam free will. He doesn't create a being in which that is forced to love him. But he says to Adam, here's a choice. You can love me by obeying me. The ability to choose is what makes this relationship real. That's what we see in Genesis 2. That's why I want to argue. Paradise is about being in perfect relationship with God. It's about being intimately connected to him, enjoying and working what he gives, and choosing to love and sit under his authority. That's the main point. That's why when we try and think about all these ideas of the perfect society, of the perfect world, it makes no sense to do so without relationship, without relation to God. Because paradise is not determined by what's there, but by who's there. It would be like me describing to you um, my marriage by what's in my flat. You know, I really love going home. I love going back to my flat. Um, But what makes my home great is not what's in my home, like my Xbox, Xbox One, I should add, and my guitar. But it's who's in my home, as great as those things are. It's who's in my home. I like going home because I like being with my wife. Paradise is being in a perfect relationship with our creator. Now, here's the problem. This is not the world we live in. Genesis 2 can seem like a fairy tale because it's a million miles away from what we experience today. There is no connection with God and humanity. It has been broken and it has been fractured And it's been fractured because Adam used that choice that God gave him in verses 16 and 17, not to love God, but to rebel against God. Second point, paradise lost. I stole that from someone. Paradise lost as humanity fractures that relationship through Adam. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this point because this is Genesis 3 territory, but um, it's important, I think, In understanding Genesis 2, the way it's written is it's written to be kind of as a unit with Genesis 3. um, They kind of parallel each other. The reason we don't live in the world of Genesis 2 is because Adam, as the first human and therefore the representative of all humanity, used the free will that God gave him not to love him but to disobey him. See, this is why sin is such a devastating thing. Sin is not a moral failure. Sin is a relational breakdown. It's a rebellion. It's a spit in the face of God's goodness. That is what Adam and Eve did. And sin, evil, and the death that God promised would come came because of their rebellion. The relationship was broken. It's what you see in Genesis 3. The intimacy that they had with God was broken. Life eternal, they could joy in his presence, was broken. The enjoyment and the work of God's creation was broken. The loving obedience 
that humanity was to have to God was broken. Genesis 3 verse 17. This is what God says to Adam after he sins, after he rebels and throws this world under the curse of sin. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In the pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread to return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. It's devastating. Genesis 2 is wonderful. And that's what makes Genesis 3 absolutely devastating. Genesis 3 is undoing all the greatness of Genesis 2, of the paradise, of the utopia. But despite that disconnect that we have within us, as we are under this curse, Genesis 2, I think, it still explains something within us as human beings. Robin alluded to this last week, the quote from C.S. Lewis, that humanity is a glorious ruin. Like when you see a ruined castle and you know that at one time it was glorious, but it's broken. That's what human beings are like. And as such, we still have this original makeup, this original design in us. We know, for example, that death is wrong. There's nothing good. There's nothing natural. There's nothing normal about death. It's wrong. We know inside of us that it's twisted. We know that there is some higher power that we need to connect to, which is why if you look at any civilization throughout human history, they have had some sort of religious belief, some sort of way of trying to connect to the divine. We know within us that there is such a thing as perfection. We know it, but we cannot make it ourselves cannot make it ourselves. I was struck by this. Um, over, the, over the holidays, I quite like to read, uh, just like take one book and devour it. Uh, and when we were on holiday a few weeks ago, I read Lord of the Flies. I hadn't read it at school. Uh, and it's a fascinating book um, written by William Golden. It's the story. It's a great book. The story of uh, you know, the school kids that are on this island and they basically end up killing each other. Um, it doesn't sound like a great book, but it is. It's very well written. Um, interestingly, somebody told me after the service this morning, it was written in response to a book written by R.M. Ballantyne called The Coral Island. And R.M. Ballantyne used to be a member of this church. There you go. So um, that's neither here nor there. It's just an interesting fact. But William Golden wrote this book, Lord of the Flies. And what I found fascinating was why he wrote it. And once I'd finished reading it, there was an essay uh, that I read on why he wrote it. It's an essay he wrote called On Fables. And he says in that essay that the reason he wrote Lord of the Flies was because he once believed that we could create utopia as human beings. Then something happened which ruined that. World War II. This is what Golden says. It's fascinating. Before the Second World War, I believed in the perfectibility of social man, that a correct structure of society would produce goodwill and that therefore you could remove all social ills by a reorganization of society. After the war, I did not believe it because I was unable to. There were things done during that period from which I still have to avert my mind lest I should be physically sick. 
They were done not by the headhunters of New Guinea or by some primitive tribe in the Amazon. They were done skillfully, coldly, by educated men, doctors, and lawyers, by men with a tradition of civilization behind them, to beings of their own kind. I do not want to elaborate on this. I would like to pass on. But, Golden says, I must say that anyone who moved through those years without understanding that man produces evil as a honey produces, as a bee produces honey, must have been blind or wrong in the head. Here's what he's saying. You want this utopia? You want paradise? You want to create this perfect world? You cannot do it because you cannot create a perfect society with imperfect people. At the end of the day, humanity, human beings, are fundamentally corrupt. They produce evil. As a bee produces honey, no matter how much we try and dress up, no matter how much we try and hide the kind of our outward moral veneer, our hearts are corrupt, and the root of that corruption is seen not so much in how good or bad we are, but in how we've treated God, our Creator. Doing what Adam did, disobeying Him, seeking to create utopia without any reference to Him. We forget that we are nothing but dust. And we elevate ourselves as if God is somehow answerable to us. And every time we think or we say or we do something that is wrong, we show that the relationship between us and our maker is fractured. We need to be restored. We need to be fixed. And the story of Genesis, the story of the Bible, is God's plan to do that. To take us back to Eden even though we don't deserve it. That's the third point I want us to see this morning. Paradise restored as God renews the relationship through Jesus. If this relationship is to be fixed, if we're to come back to Eden, then we need to be changed. We need to be brought back to God. That is what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to do. He came into human history to die for us, to take the punishment for our sins so that we could be free from any form of punishment, so that we could have forgiveness. But Jesus didn't come just to make forgiveness possible to us. Jesus didn't come just to give us a blank slate. Jesus came to create a new humanity, a new humanity with a new connection to God and a new relationship with him. That's why when we talk about Jesus' salvation, although the cross is central to it, we don't just focus on the cross, we also focus on the resurrection. The cross may bring about forgiveness, but the resurrection shows us that this forgiveness will bring about a new life. When Jesus rose from the dead, he is, to use the words of the Bible, the firstborn of a new creation. The first man to come back from the dust as a new creation. And I want us to turn now to John 20. because This is all tied in with Genesis 2. John chapter 20, it's on page 907. This is the resurrection passage. And I want us to see, this is a passage that's just filled with joy and excitement. It's a wonderful passage to preach on. Um, but I want us to, sh- to see something. I, there was something in John 20 I always thought was really weird, and I never understood until studying Genesis 2 this week. John chapter 20, page 907, verse 21. See if you can spot the relationship between Genesis 2. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Speaking to his apostles. And when he had said this, 
He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And you see what Jesus is doing? He breathes on the apostles. He breathes on them. God breathed life into Adam. There was something from God that he gave to Adam to make him alive. Jesus breathes new life into the disciples. That new life is characterized by the Holy Spirit that comes from him into his followers. See, when you trust God, not only is forgiveness possible, but God's Holy Spirit comes into your life. God takes up residence in your life. And that means the relationship is restored. We are permanently now connected to God. There is no separation. We're coming back to Genesis 2. Look at, look at point one on the sheet there and, and the different points about Genesis 2. Point one, intimately connected to God. Jesus reconnects us back to God by paying for our sins and giving us God's Holy Spirit. We are now in relationship with God, which is why when we pray to God, we call him Abba Father. And because that's true, that means point number two. We can enjoy and work in God's creation like Adam did. That doesn't mean that work will always be great and will always be filled with happiness. This world that we live in is still broken. But here's how this applies to us. When we see creation in relation to the creator, you're able to enjoy it properly. God made the beautiful diversity of this world. He made it so that we could enjoy it. The problem is, what we do as human beings is we abuse the gift by making too much of it. We, we worship the gifts rather than the giver. So it's when other created beings or created things become our purpose for living, we will be forever dissatisfied But when you're in relationship with God, you've got him. That's the ultimate. And so therefore you're able to enjoy the good gifts that he gives. Even today, just preaching this, I get to see this wonderful creation and the beautiful sunlight, which is a nice treat in Scotland when it does come out. It means enjoying the variety of of good food that he has given to us. It means enjoying these things, not as an end in and of themselves, but enjoying them as a means of giving praise to God that he has given this to us. It means enjoying creation. It means, it means enjoying great pieces of art and wonderful compositions of music. That's what God is like. God is not gray. He is not boring. He has given us these things to enjoy. It means for me personally, I get to enjoy eating spicy chicken wings and watching the football listening to Iron Maiden. Good music. There'll be good music in the new creation, better than Iron Maiden. I know that's hard to believe. Good food. Wonderful diversity of God's creation. And don't we see, from Genesis 2, don't we see what God is like? A wonderful loving father, one who wants to give the best he can. God is for our joy. When he gives, he gives way more extravagantly and generously than we ever would, even to the point that he gives up the ultimate and the most precious and lovely thing that he has, his own son for us. He is so good and wildly excessive in his kindness and his love which he pours out on all those who are redeemed in Christ. A relationship to him also affects our work. Genesis 2, we've seen a lot about work. 
work's not a bad thing. It's been distorted, so it becomes wearisome and tiring. But it's a good thing that's part of our DNA as human beings. You will be working in the new creation with Christ. I won't, because I'm a minister. I need a new job, and so the doctors. Doctors will need a new job too. We'll have to get something else there. Um, But you'll be working. Maybe my animation degree will come in handy for something there. Uh, But when we're in relationship with God, that's what will happen. It gives us perspective. It It gives a worth to the work that we do now. But it also doesn't elevate it beyond what it is. It doesn't make work an ultimate thing because God, our Father, is our ultimate reason for living. And finally, point three, being in relationship with God means we want to sit under his authority. We don't need to perfectly obey God to be in relationship with him. Jesus has done that for us on our behalf. The relationship is perfectly restored. We cannot be taken from the hands of our Father, despite the fact that we still sin. But when we get this new life, this new creation, to use Paul's language, we have God's Holy Spirit in us, working in us to change us, to become more like Jesus, to become obedient to our Father, and we do so out of love and a desire to please him, not because God's a tyrant that imposes impossible standards on us. See, this is the point of this, of all this in Genesis 2. Eden, paradise, is not some bounty commercial. Paradise is being in relationship with the one that our hearts were made for. It's coming back to the source of life. And it's a wonderful thing that you can have now in Christ, but the best is yet to come. Let's bring it all into land with Revelation 22, and we'll notice the the Eden language that is used in this passage. Page 1041. This is how the Bible ends, coming back to Eden. Though it's a little bit different, you'll see. 1041. Revelation 22. I'll read verses 1 to 4. Then this is John's description of the new creation and he uses a lot of pictures and, and metaphors to describe it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Genesis 2, the river. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. Notice now it's not a garden, it's a city. All the redeemed of Christ are there living together. And on either side of this river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. All the brokenness and hurt and pain that we face in this life will be healed. No longer will there be anything accursed. There will be no Genesis 3. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him like we were made to. We will see his face. Notice the relationship language here. They will see his face And his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, God will be ours and we will be his. And night will be no more. No evil, no chaos. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Happily ever after is not a childish pipe dream but a profound reality for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And so here's my plea to you this morning. If you haven't trusted Jesus, now is the time. No matter what you've done, Jesus offers forgiveness to all who come to him. In Luke 23, as Jesus Christ is crucified because he is dying for our sins, for the sins of humanity, there is a man next to him who spent his whole life doing wrong, who is hanging there crucified also because he was a criminal. A man who, when Jesus originally was put on that cross, started mocking him and making fun of him. And then something happened to him when he saw Jesus. Something that that changed in his life. And he turned to Jesus. And all he said to him was, will you remember me when you come to your kingdom? And Jesus said to that man, right on the cusp of death, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what we have in Christ. Paradise is not a place, it's a person. And one day, Revelation 22 will be true for all those who trust in Christ. Fully healed, known by him, loved by him, reigning with him as we were meant to and spending all eternity enjoying the light of his love. That's where I'm going. That's where you're going. And that's what it means to be in relationship with God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful cosmic truth. Why we are here, where we are going, what is our purpose. Such big themes we see in Genesis. Thank you, Lord, that although this world is broken and although we feel its brokenness sometimes so painfully, Jesus has come to restore relationship. Jesus has come to fix it and to bring us back to you, back to Eden, back to paradise. Thank you that if we trust in Christ, we will be with him and reigning with him in this new creation. Father, help us to keep our minds ever on that, to enjoy the good that we have now, but to always look forward to what Jesus has purchased for us by his blood. Thank you that we can call you Father this morning because of him. His name we pray. Amen.